Yeah, it's funny because today Jesus is on a seven-mile walk, and he gets all seven miles to talk with these two people that are on this road that we're going to read about. And I only have a, a short time. I wish I could have seven miles worth of a walk to explain all that Jesus uh, is and does in this passage. But uh, we're in Luke. Uh, we're getting close to finishing Luke's gospel. And so today we're looking at Luke chapter 24. Uh, we're going to read verses 11 to 35. It's printed in your bulletin if you don't have your Bible with you. There's also a place where you can take notes as well on pages 3 and 4. So give ear now as I read from God's Word. But they didn't believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Now that same day... Two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem, and do you not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what's more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. He said to them, How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Didn't the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It's true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way, and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. This is God's word. Well, this series is called Conflict and Community because we're trying to think through what, uh, the, in the midst of a life that's filled with conflict, the power that community can make and the difference that a community can make as we deal with conflict. And, and speaking about this, Rick Warren said, Rick Warren is a pastor of a church in Orange County, He said just last week, he said, during hard economic times, people go to three places more. He said they go to movies for entertainment, so we're all in the right place. Um, 
they go to bars to talk about their problems. And then third, they go to church for hope. I thought that's kind of interesting. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty profound, um, I guess, assessment in, in the sense of just nailing how people respond to difficulty. And what it reminds me of is that we have this unbelievable opportunity right now, today. The worse that the news gets, the worse problems that seem to inflict our nation, our country, I mean, our world, even in our city here, the better opportunity we have to genuinely offer people hope. Okay, they say that the stars shine brightest when the sky is blackest. And it just, it hit me that the whole point of Easter, the whole point of the resurrection of Jesus is that in the midst of the worst possible circumstances, there can be hope. Not just a glimmer of hope, but overwhelmingly conquering hope. We have an opportunity to really offer the people that we see, to offer each other genuine hope in the midst of our circumstances, in the midst of the conflict that we are plagued with. We have the chance to overcome. We have the chance to to live not for our circumstances, but to live for something that's eternal. We actually have something that we can live for that is irrespective of our circumstances. And I thought, that's good news. That's really good news. That gets my heart excited. Um, Now, in order to do this, though, we actually need to have hope. right? And I think if we're honest, reality sets in. We tend to get depressed when when things fall apart. We tend to get depressed and our depression sort of steals our hope. Depression sort of happens when we think that reality isn't going to match up with our expectations. Right? We get depressed and we don't see any hope for us to actually achieve or, or to receive what, we are, what we're expecting out of life. And so in order for us to have something, our depression, our downcastness needs to be swallowed up with joy. Okay? And joy comes when we see our hopes being fulfilled. Being fulfilled. And so these disciples, these two folks walking on the road, they needed hope. Okay, they were depressed. They were so depressed about Jesus that even when news of the empty tomb came, they didn't believe it. And I just want to ask, is that where you are today? Is that where you are? Has, has depression or have your hopes been dashed? Have your expectations been, are you at the point now where you're lowering your expectations in a, in a way that just really feeds a depressing spirit in you? because you're starting to realize that life isn't going to be worth living. Well, Jesus knows that we need help. Jesus knows that we can't do this on our own. And so Jesus comes to these two people. He comes to these folks to to minister to them, to love them. And today, as we go through this text, Jesus is going to come to you. He is going to come and to minister his love to you. No matter who you are, no matter what you're dealing with, Jesus is going to come and he is going to draw near to you. And the question is, are you going to be able to recognize him? Will you see him when he comes? The disciples couldn't. It's interesting. Jesus shows up in the midst of their confusion and they couldn't recognize him. Will you be able to recognize him today? 
That's the question you want to ask yourself. And so as we see in this text, we're going to see there's three points. First, we're going to see that our blindness keeps us from recognizing Jesus. Okay, our blindness keeps us from recognizing Jesus. And then that Jesus comes to us in his word. And then third, Jesus comes even closer to us in the Lord's Supper. Okay, and I'll repeat those as we go along. So first, we have a problem with blindness. Blindness keeps us from seeing Jesus when he comes. Verse 16 says, they were kept from recognizing him. You know, this is the real problem. Right? This is the same day as last week. This is the continuation of the story. There's news coming out that Jesus has been risen, but nobody believes it. And so these two are walking seven miles from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And they, Jesus walks up to them, but they don't recognize him. And so you kind of ask, why? What, what's going on here? Why didn't they recognize him? Well, I think the reasons for them tend to be reasons for us as well. First, Jesus had a new body. Okay? He had a resurrection body. And we don't know all the details about what it means to have a resurrection body, but we get hints. You know, from this text, we see that, uh, that a resurrection body is similar in appearance, evidently, but it's different enough to where he's not imminent or immediately recognized. And I think for us, this happens to us when our circumstances change. Okay, sometimes we get blinded when our circumstances change. Okay, there are times in our lives or situations that we've been in where we do see Jesus. Okay, maybe it's when you're growing up or with a certain social group or in a particular environment. You see Jesus working. You, you hear and you, you can understand the answers that he brings. And then when you change circumstances, maybe you go off to college or you get a new job or you become part of a new group, all of a sudden with the changing in circumstances, we can't see Jesus anymore. Okay, in a sense, that's what these disciples uh, were going through. And our circumstances can sometimes blind us to Jesus. I think with spiritual matters, though, the bigger issue is that there are times when it's our wrong expectations that blind us. You know, it's wrong expectations, I think, that really come after us. Sometimes it's a wrong expectation of ourselves and our lives. Sometimes what we think about ourselves keeps us from seeing Jesus. You know, if you think, well, I don't really need a Savior. I'm not that bad. If you think that, and then Jesus shows up as the Savior of the world, you're not going to be able to recognize him, okay? Because you don't need him. And I think, too, our sin actually can blind us at times. I mean, think about it. We are, by nature, people who want to justify ourselves, right? We all, all of us, I feel this in my own heart. When someone brings up issues to me that are things I need to change, I want to sweep them under the rug. I don't want to deal with them. I'd rather not be told sometimes. I'd rather make excuses for my sins. I'd rather explain them away or, or get defensive and, and maybe lash back out at the person that, that's talking to me. Right? We all have that inside of us. And when we make excuses, when we hide the truth, we are going to be blind to Jesus when he shows up and tries to tell us the truth. Okay? And so sometimes it's a wrong view of ourselves that causes us to be blind. And I think, too, it's not just our sin in the sense of when we talk about lawlessness or breaking the laws, but um, I think religious people miss Jesus a lot because they spend all their time trying to be good enough to earn God's favor, right? Their whole lives are built around, if I can just be this kind of person, then God will love me. 
And so they look at Jesus or they look for a Jesus who will simply bless their good works and say, yes, you're good enough or yes, I approve of you. And so when the real Jesus shows up, the real Jesus who says, you know what? All of us have sinned and fall short of God's glory. All of us need somebody to pay for our sins and to live a perfect life for us. Religious people oftentimes can't see him. They think, oh, well, that must be for somebody else. Like that's for the, the wicked, sinful people, not the good, moral, religious folks. And so again, even our religion sometimes causes us to miss Jesus when he shows up. And then I think also, it's, it's, it's incredibly common that a lot of times we have a wrong view of Jesus. Okay, not just a wrong view of ourselves. We have a wrong view of Jesus that causes us not to see him. You know, he shows up and we think, oh, well, it can't be you. We're looking for Jesus, right? This is the problem that happened during Jesus' day with so many of the Jewish folks. Uh, and this was the problem of the two disciples. They expected that the Messiah would come, the Christ, that he would come and he would conquer. He would come and he would usher in and gather an army to himself and overthrow the bad religious leadership and overthrow the pagan Roman leadership and set up his kingdom and reign. That's what they were looking for. The idea of dying, the idea of Jesus dying, it wasn't even on their mental map, right? They had no capacity. And so when Jesus died on the cross, when he was crucified and buried, it was over. For them, they were blind to anything else that would happen. They couldn't see Jesus because they had a wrong view of who he was and what he came to do. And so this was their blindness. This is our blindness. If we have wrong views of ourselves, we have wrong views of Jesus, we won't be able to see him when he comes. We won't be able to see him. You won't be able to see him in the midst of your difficulties, in the midst of your trials, in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of the conflict that you deal with. You won't be able to see him if you've got a wrong view of yourself or a wrong view of him. And so Jesus answers this blindness with our next two points. His two solutions are the word and the Lord's Supper. Okay, and so the second point is that Jesus comes to us in the Bible. Jesus comes to us in the Bible. Jesus, kind of a mild rebuke with some mirth and compassion mixed in in verse 25, when he says, how foolish you are, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Um, What Jesus then begins to do is he begins to love them by giving them the specific truths that their hearts needed to hear to enable them to see him okay jesus doesn't just say well hey let me just do a bible study for you what jesus does is jesus understands exactly where they're coming from he knows them intimately he knows exactly where their hearts uh, are troubled and he knows the exact truths that if he can plant those truths into their hearts they will finally see him and they will finally experience the joy of the resurrection. And so what he does, it's, it's kind of funny. Um, last, uh, last week, um, I had a, a 10-year-old who, uh, who sat through the service, came up to me and said, so do you, have to re- do you have to believe that Jesus rose from the dead in order to be a Christian? And I, I commended him because he was actually listening to my sermon because he heard me say that. And he was saying, is that really true? And so I commended him. I told him a good job, way to, you know, way to listen. And then I said, uh, well, yes, 
Yeah, you do. That's, that's the foundation of Christianity is that Jesus rose from the dead. You know, and I talked a little bit more about what I said in the sermon. And, uh, and then he said, well, then what's the rest of the Bible for? I thought, you know, out of the mouth of babes. What a great question. What's the rest of the Bible for? And I said, well, you know what? Come back next week and I'll tell you. Because what Jesus does is he shows us what the rest of the Bible is for. He goes through from Moses and all the prophets and he explains to them, verse 27, what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus shows them the truth that they were missing was that the Messiah was supposed to come and suffer before he entered his glory. Verse 26, didn't the Christ have to suffer these things and enter his glory? And so last night I actually took the, uh, the Old Testament and I wrote, I basically wrote down how every single book in the Old Testament points out this truth, okay, that, that shows that the Christ is to come, that Jesus is to come and to suffer and then enter into his glory. Now, I can't give all of that to you because we don't have a seven-mile walk that we can go on. But, uh, but let me just give you a sampling of what Jesus might have said. There are some people who have said, if you could bring me to any moment in the Bible, any time, any place where I could pick and be there as a fly on the wall, I'd want to be here. Because here you get to see Jesus in this extended, lengthy fashion interpret the Bible for us and show us what it really means. And so here's a sampling of what Jesus might have said. In Genesis 3.15, we see that it points to Jesus as the one who's going to come and destroy the work of the devil. But in doing so, he's going to suffer a blow. In Genesis 22, we see that it points to Jesus as the ram who would be our substitute, offering himself up in death to God. In the book of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 33, we see Moses standing as an interceder between God and his people. And he points us to Jesus who offers a sacrifice himself if it means that God would forgive and bless his people. The book of Leviticus as a whole teaches us about Jesus as the one who's going to sacrifice himself to make us acceptable to God. It also shows us the priesthood. Right? The priesthood, because Jesus is the one who mediates between us and God, offering himself as our sacrifice. We see in the book of Ruth that Jesus is pictured as our kinsman redeemer because we have lost our inheritance. And yet Jesus comes in his death and resurrection and he purchases, us, purchases for us an inheritance that we have lost. In First and Second Samuel, we see that Jesus is the king after God's own heart. He is the one who will lead by his own righteousness to lead us as God's people into faithfulness to God. In First and Second Kings, we see that Jesus is the king who brings not division within the kingdom of God, but he brings unity. He doesn't just unite the people of one nation, but in his death and resurrection, Jesus purchases all the nations and joins them all in a worldwide family of God that doesn't have any more national or racial boundaries. In First and Second Chronicles, we see that even after you have experienced God's chastening, God's judgment, God will still love you because Jesus has died for your sins and pleads for you with God. In the book of Esther, we see Jesus as the one who didn't just risk the death penalty by going into the king and asking for her people to go free, but actually experienced the death penalty so that his people could go free. 
Job is a picture of Jesus as the ultimate righteous sufferer who still trusted God in the midst of his suffering and blessed his friends. In Ecclesiastes, we see that Jesus is the one who does worship God and keep his commands, giving meaning and purpose to us in a life that is oftentimes fraught with meaninglessness. Right? His life and death show us that there is meaning in this world. In the Song of Solomon, Jesus is pictured. I mean, we see that marriage and love and sex uh, all honor God and are a gift of him to us. And yet we also see Jesus as the greater lover, the one who loved his bride, the church, and died so that she might be cleansed and sanctified. Isaiah shows us that Jesus is God with us. He is the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, who then suffers in order to serve his people, bearing the weight of their sin so that they might experience redemption. Lamentation shows us that it's the heart of Jesus who weeps over our brokenness. And then in his death and resurrection replaces our mourning with his joy-filled song. Ezekiel shows us that Jesus offers himself in death so that we might be brought back from death and be invested with God's spirit so that we might be God's powerful army to bring his name into all the nations. Daniel shows us that Jesus is the king who suffered and who was vindicated by God to reign over a kingdom that ends up filling all the earth. Joel shows us that it's Jesus' death and resurrection that brings the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, bringing blessing and strength to the church. We see Jonah shows us that Jesus has to pass through death and resurrection to save us from our self-righteousness so that we will go and bless the nations. Habakkuk shows us that it's Jesus' death and resurrection that guarantees God's blessing to us no matter what your circumstances are. And then Zechariah shows us Jesus as our great high priest taking our filthy stained garments and giving us brand new white linen robes. And then finally Malachi shows us that Jesus is coming. And in his death and resurrection, he has opened up heaven so that God's blessings can rain down upon us. This is, I mean, this is the scriptures when it comes to the Bible. I mean, this is what Jesus, you know, what's the rest of the Bible about? It's about Jesus. It's about him. All of it from beginning to end. This is why we say that the whole Bible is the gospel. This is why we preach through the Old Testament. We want to show you. We're not just trying to, I mean, it's not just designed to dazzle you or to impress you with connections that we can make. We want you, I want you to understand that the whole Bible is about Jesus. It's about him coming in his kingdom. And it's about how his kingdom has to come through the midst of his suffering before he enters into glory. He comes to suffer for us. He comes to suffer. I mean, you need to read the Bible not because it's some work that you have to check off on a spiritual to-do list to earn favor with God. You read the Bible because this, this is where you get Jesus, right? It's not that reading the Bible fills up your spiritual glass so that you can drink. Reading the Bible is drinking from the spiritual glass that God has filled up and is overflowing. Because every single part of the Bible points us to our Savior. It points us to Jesus. It's all about him. And it's about what he has done. It's no wonder their hearts were burning within them. They say, or is it in verse 32, weren't our hearts burning within us while he talked to us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Do you see this? 
I mean, this is what made all the difference for them because they knew the Messiah was supposed to come and to set up a kingdom and to reign, but they never dreamed that this king would actually come to serve. Kings don't do that. Kings usurp authority for themselves. Kings use their power and authority to serve themselves and their kingdom and their authority and their, their children. They, but Jesus comes in love. Kings don't care about the weak. They don't care about the slow. They either leave them behind or crush them in their tracks. And yet Jesus comes for the least of us. Jesus comes. He doesn't break folks who are bending. He doesn't smother out our hearts when they're, when they're just glimmering, when they're left in, in, in kind of like a, in a spark. Jesus comes in love, and this is what they couldn't see until Jesus showed it to them, until Jesus showed it to them. So many people think that coming to Jesus is like coming to that religion that's going to beat you over the head until you conform your life. That's not Jesus. The whole Bible, from beginning to end, is about how Jesus comes to serve in love. He comes to serve all the way to the point where he gave up his life for us. This is what the Bible is about. Every single jot and tittle is about the Messiah coming to atone for us, to suffer for us. He saves us by suffering for us. I don't know how many people I talked to over the last week who said to me, and it's funny because sometimes you get this, oh, I've never heard that before, right? That, that was a new insight and that was really meaningful. This last week, it was like over and over and over again, both Christians and non-Christians saying, you know, I've heard that before, but I've never understood it. And I got the joy to say, you know what? That's exactly what the disciples went through. You're just like them, right? And I am too. I mean, this is the joy of God's word. You know, we come to his word. You know, again, it's not supposed to be this drudgery thing. We're coming because we're learning to have right expectations about ourselves, right expectations about Jesus. You know, have you had this burning? Does your heart burn within you? I know I have. I mean, times when I'm studying and I learn something, I make a new connection, or I see something in the scriptures, you know, or sometimes when I'm listening to a sermon or hearing somebody else share what God's doing in their life, when I'm talking to other people and one-on-one and I'm listening to what God is showing them, God's word is powerful. Jesus comes to us in his word. You know, for some of you, it's the ideas that just make your heart sing. It's just understanding the Bible that just lifts your spirit and you think, yes, I've got it. This is great. You know, for others of you, it's, it's really, it's seeing the accomplishment of God's will in your life. It's seeing the transforming work worked out in your life that really gets you going where you see the difference that god makes in your life and you think yeah he says it's supposed to be this way and i see it in my life and that gets you going and then still for others it's seeing his love god's attitude god's perspective sort of welling up in your hearts you know all of these are wonderful ways to experience jesus in the bible and i just i just want to, I, I love the bible can i just say that i just i love this book This book has changed my life in so many ways. This book continues to come to me and to show me where I'm, where I'm, where I'm not doing well. It shows me new areas where I've, where I haven't recognized Jesus and what he really looks like. It shows me new ways where, and it just, it fills my heart with joy. The blessings that come from devoting yourself to this book. 
And I just, I want to commend it to you. Jesus comes to us. This is how he comes to us. It's in the Bible. He comes. He is revealed in the Bible for us. You know, and I think when we see Jesus, that it all points to him. Just a note on that it all points to him coming to suffer. I think this is helpful. We all need to recognize that suffering is often part of God's plan for our lives. Okay? Suffering is often God's plan for our lives. We think it's a sign that God's mad at us or that life is broken or it's not what it should be. But I think even here we see that suffering has a redemptive value. You know, Jesus, it was by suffering that he brought blessing to the world. And so when you're suffering, look for ways to serve others. I mean, all that sounds a little bit kooky because, you know, when you're suffering, you want people to serve you, Right. You want people to look at you or you want people to give you attention. And, and maybe you, and there's nothing wrong with needing support. There's nothing wrong with needing encouragement. But in the midst of that, look for an opportunity to serve someone else. Look While you're suffering, not after, but while you're suffering, maybe it's looking for someone else who's suffering like you are and just letting them know that you're going through the same thing and that you're supporting them. Right? Maybe it's looking for someone else who's suffering in a different way that you're not suffering in so that you can offer them comfort and encouragement. I mean, whatever it is, look for an opportunity to serve because when you do that, that's like being conformed to the image of Jesus. Okay. Being conformed to Jesus image doesn't just mean living this morally upright life. It means suffering and yet not giving up. It means suffering and giving God honor and glory in the midst of it. And this transforms suffering for us. It revolutionizes the way we approach suffering. It causes our depression to get swallowed up in joy, and it gives us hope that we can share with others. It's powerful. It's powerful. I think when we see Jesus in this way, when we see that, um, that he came to suffer and to serve before he entered into his glory, this sort of begins to untwist the tangles of our wrong expectations. You know, when we start seeing Jesus the right way, it begins to help us see ourselves the right way too. And so I'd encourage you, again, um, to see how Jesus uses the word. You know, it's funny. He doesn't come to these two folks and do this miraculous revelation experience, right? What does he do? He comes to them with the word. He opens to them the scriptures. These are scriptures that they knew that they had. He teaches them the scriptures. That penetrates their hearts and it sets them on fire. So Jesus comes to us in the word. And then uh, third, the third point is that Jesus comes even closer to us in the Lord's Supper. He comes even closer to us in the Lord's Supper. They convinced him to stay and eat. They were so excited. They didn't want to stop his, you know, this, this teacher from teaching them. They drag him in. And it, so Jesus goes in. And at dinner, he really, he reenacts the, Lord, the Last Supper. Okay, he takes bread, he breaks it, he gives it to them. And at that point, at that point, everything clicked. Their eyes were opened. On the road, their hearts had been opened to understand the scriptures. But now, in verse 31, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. They recognized him. Jesus has surveyed the Old Testament and then pointing to the crucifixion brought it all together for them. And let me say it also brings it together for us. Okay, we're going to observe the Lord's Supper. 
after the sermon because there is nowhere that the good news is made more clear and more powerful than in the Lord's Supper. Okay? Jesus and the good news are most clear. The, the Lord's table shows that Jesus is for you, he is in you, and he works through you. And you've got to understand that in order to take the blessings that the Lord's Supper is. He is he's for you. What that means is that Jesus, he says, this is my body given for you. This is my blood which was shed for you, right? And so we see that Jesus comes and offers himself for us, right? His bre- the bread is broken, his body, his, his, the blood is poured out, his blood. These are pictures of his death. He came to die for us, to take away our sin and to give us a new relationship with God. That is Jesus for us. But then what do we do? We eat the bread. We drink the cup. We take him in. And so it's not just Jesus for us dying and rising again, but it's Jesus then in us dying and rising again. We receive his power, his love, his patience, his wisdom, his everything. He fills us up with himself as we take the elements The Belgic Confession, which is a confession from yesteryear, says this, As certainly as we receive and hold this sacrament in our hands and eat and drink the same with our mouths, we also do as certainly receive Jesus himself by faith. And our faith is the mouth of the soul. The Lord's Supper is more than just a sign. Okay, we call it a sacrament because it's actually a seal. It's a seal of the blessings that we have. It's like a guarantee. God is saying, look, in the word, it says that the Christ has to suffer these things and then enter his glory. At the supper, what it says is the Christ had to come, suffer these things and enter his glory for you. For you. Because you're down, you're taking it. You're taking Jesus into yourself. You are uniting yourself to Jesus again and again and again in the supper. And God is saying, I want you to know as sure as you hold these things in your hands, as sure as you taste these things in your mouth, that's how sure you can be that he did this for you, that he does this in you, in you. It gives us assurance. It's assurance and then that third piece is that he does it through you, through you. Okay, you know, it's, it's interesting because in one sense, the Bible's not about you, okay? Christianity's not about you. It's about God. It's about Jesus and giving him praise and glory because he deserves it, not us. And yet when you turn around and say, okay, God, well, what are you all about? God says, well, I'm about you. <laughs> it's amazing. The most important person in the universe, beyond the universe, thinks it's about you, wants you to know so surely that you can have his blessings, that you can be in relationship with him, that you can have his love and his power and his strength and his kindness and his gentleness well up in your heart, that he doesn't just tell you over and over again in every book of the Bible, but then he comes and says, and I want you to know for sure because I'm asking you to believe. When you hear this read, I'm asking you to believe it's true by faith. But with this, I want you to taste, touch, and see. I want you to feel something so that you can have an even greater measure 
of assurance. That's what the table does. And then he's, and, and, and then, so this is, it's, it's through you because God wants you so that you will then be his agents in the world. Okay, all of God's blessings come and they have a tag on them that says, pass it on. Okay, in the beginning, when God called Abraham in Genesis 12, he said, in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And that's what God is doing. God is strengthening us at the table. He's saying, yes, this is really true for you. Now take this with you and share it with others. And this is how our role then comes in. We, with great joy, sit down. We sit down and watch Jesus save us. Okay, we don't add anything to that. We have no role in that other than just to believe it for ourselves. We embrace his victory. We watch him. He's LeBron James, right, in the NBA, winning and, and, and I mean, probably most valuable player this year. So we watch him work, and we're, we're a fan, right? We're watching. We're not even on the, on, the, on the court, okay? Well, then after, well, all right, now he's going to break down. Never mind. Um, <laughs> we watch him do what we couldn't do. We watch him win the victory we could never win. He, we couldn't beat our sin. We couldn't beat the enemy. We needed him to come and save us, to destroy sin and the power of death. We needed him to do that. And when he's done that, he says, I'm going to put this power in you and I'm going to send you out. I'm going to send you out to tell the world what I've done in your life, to tell each other what I've done in your life. And so for us, our role then comes in where we need to be a community where we're talking about this stuff. What is God doing in your life? Tell somebody about it. We need to be a community of people here where we are constantly encouraging each other with how God's grace is filling our lives and what we're learning and what we're seeing and how God is, is transforming us and, and the new things that we're learning. And as we share this stuff, we become a community of people where, gosh, we actually have hope that we can offer. And we take that outside and we actually have something to offer to bless the folks in our city, the folks in our neighborhood, the folks, um, the folks in our families. Um, and so this pulls us in to send us out. Boy. And so this supper, it's a celebration. Okay? It's not a time where you get morose and overly introspective. It's a time where you come and rejoice that God has invited you to come and eat with him and that you have the very power and love of Jesus that's now going to be coursing through your veins even more because you took him into yourself. I mean, this is, this is the supper. It's a wedding feast. It's a party. It's a celebration. As you come forward today when we observe the supper, come knowing that God is blessing you. Come knowing this incredible joy. I want to close with just one, one final, I guess, statement. You know, in, in Luke's day, people probably said, that, that got this gospel, they probably said the same thing that we say all the time, which is, oh man, I wish I could have been there. Right? I wish I could have seen Jesus rise. Then maybe I would believe. Or then maybe this area of my life, if Jesus were really to show up in my life, to see him physically, then I could conquer this or that. And what this story is telling us is that, you know what? It's actually not what you need. It's not what you need. Last week we saw that the testimony and the empty tomb makes you wonder that it could be true. 
here what we see is that in the Word and in the Lord's Supper, it is true. You see Jesus portrayed, crucified and risen in his word and at the Lord's Supper. And that is what we need. That is where we go to find assurance. How many of you uh, use iTunes? Okay, a lot of you. It's a computer program, and, and it's amazing. Apple makes it, and there's two things that make this program wonderful. Okay? Um, the first is that it organizes your whole media life, Right? All of your songs, all the videos, everything on your computer, you, you can, um, you know, your music, your audio, the, the, your video, everything. What it does is it searches your whole hard drive and it grabs all the stuff that you have and it puts it in one place. It consolidates it, it organizes it so that you can make playlists, you can make um, just different groupings, you can rate songs. I mean, you can group it in like an infinite number of ways. It's really wonderful. Get your life organized. But the second thing that iTunes does there's this place that you can click on where you can access the media world. Okay? It's called the iTunes Store. Right? If you use this, you click on this thing, and all of a sudden, you have access into the world of media. Anything you could possibly want. Anything you could hope for. I mean, books, music, videos, television episodes, movies. They have shorts. You can get lectures that are just obscure, crazy things that somebody's doing in a university or stuff that's, I mean, everything that you could, it's limitless. It's limitless, the stuff that you can find in the iTunes store, right? And so it's interesting because iTunes is a lot like Jesus, okay? Believing in Jesus is a lot like using iTunes. And this, I think this is actually helpful um, <laughs> because a lot of people come to Jesus because they want their life to get organized, Right? And that's a good thing. Jesus, with his wisdom and his love, he will help you sort of organize your life and get your thinking straightened out in different areas about yourself, about him, about God. He'll restore a relationship with you. He'll put a big measure of order in your life. And that is a wonderful thing. But when you come to Jesus, you also get access to this whole other world. And it's not the media world. You get access to the world to come. Okay, you get access to heaven, to heaven. Because remember last week, Jesus passes through death and now lives in the world to come. In Jesus, you get to access that world and it transforms you. It transforms you. You get access to that. What do you need to know? What do you need to fix? What do you need to, to grow in? Well, you can look it up here in the word, in the Bible, and then you can experience it at the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you so much for the way that you, that you minister to us and that you love us. Thank you for giving us this word that really does transform our hearts, that really does change us from the inside out. And we thank you too for the supper that we're going to experience. Lord, there's so much here that can be said, so much that has been said. And I just pray that you would help us to love your word, that you would make us people devoted to your word and devoted to sharing what you're doing in us through your word with each other and with the folks around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.